All right, our passage is Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. Luke 9, 1 to 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and take your leave from there. And as for those who do not receive you, when you depart from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, and taking with them, taking them with him, he withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him, and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And the day began to decline, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more then five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them recline to eat in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all recline. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate and were satisfied, and that which was left over to them of the broken pieces was picked up twelve baskets full. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word that reminds us of the kingdom of God and the need to believe in the gospel, the true gospel, and never to reject it. We pray that you'll teach us to be not like the multitudes in seeking miracles and food, but seeking for the true word and responding appropriately to it. Grant us faith like that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, we do indeed have Christ sending the the twelve out to preach the gospel, but also to accompany the preaching of the gospel with miracles. The miracles, they attract the multitudes. They even attract an unbelieving wicked king, Herod, Herod the Tetrarch or King, the Bible calls him both Tetrarch and King. He, he is even amused and interested in seeing Christ. But we'll see that it is really the Word of God that should be their attraction. But it's often not the attraction of the multitudes. The attraction of the multitudes is in being dazzled with their eyes and having their bellies bulging. That's what they want. Let's go to verse 1 and first see what instructions he gives to his 12 apostles. 
And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. The twelve, we know, is a biblical way to summarize the twelve apostles or twelve disciples who accompanied Jesus during his uh, uh, public ministry. They are named in Matthew 10, a parallel to this account, in Matthew 10, verses 1 to 4. The twelve are named. And of the twelve, the most significant one is Judas Iscariot. This should remind us that Jesus even sent an unbeliever who was never a true believer, but a ravenous wolf in sheep's clothing. He even sent Judas with these abilities, with the commission to preach and the the commission to heal people of their afflictions. This is what Judas had over the demons and over all the diseases. But all of them had this. All 11 uh, of the true believers had it, and as well Judas. He gives them power over the demons and diseases because the demons and diseases are the result of sin. And it's the preaching of the gospel and the power of God that overcomes sin and all of the consequences of sin. That is, the diseases that are in the world, all of the afflictions, the natural evils and the moral evils of the world are here because of sin. The demons promote natural evil, that is, catastrophes, earthquakes, hurricanes, and all kinds of things like that. But they also promote moral evil. That's what they do. And a part of the natural evil that's experienced by all people is the diseases that we have in the world. This is showing that God, through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, has the ability to overcome all of these maladies, all of these afflictions that come on us. But that's not all. Verse 2, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. That's a summary of why he sent them out. To proclaim the kingdom of God, which in verse 6 is equal to preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God are the same. There are some interpreters of the Bible, false interpreters, who inaccurately say that preaching the gospel is different from the kingdom of God or different from the kingdom of heaven. No, the the preaching of the gospel and the kingdom of God are one and the same. They are different ways of describing the same truths. We see this explicitly in Mark 1, 14 and 15. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 14 says gospel of God. Verse 15 says kingdom of God and the gospel. So it's all one and the same. We cannot dissect these terms and make them different than what they really are. When we do so, we are distorting Scripture and putting the truth of God in jeopardy. Because those proponents who say the kingdom of God is different from the gospel exclude salvation from sin and forgiveness of sins in the death and resurrection of Christ from those who hear about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't include all those things. It has to do with other things, things that are related to the world and comforts of the world and experiences of the world that are different from the experience of forgiveness of sins in Christ. Because they say 
it's only for a certain period of time that people hear the gospel and believe the gospel. That's not true. Now, in classical dispensationalism, that's what they teach. They teach that there is a distinction between kingdom of God and the gospel. Not true. And in liberalism, in liberal theology, they like to make a distinction between kingdom of God and gospel because they want the kingdom of God to be feeding people so that they have full bellies and clothing them so that they're not walking around naked. That's what they say should be done now. That's God's focus now. That's what the kingdom of God is. That's not true. Certainly we have to preach forgiveness of sins to every generation from Adam until the end of the world. And when we see people in need, we should help them. First help those in your own family, then those in your own church, and then as you have means, help people outside the church. That is the way we should do it. According to the way the Bible expects us to love our family, love the church, and love the world. According to the Bible's definition of love. Well, in this case, we see in verses 3 and following, Jesus gives his 12 specific instructions. Now, at this point, we have to keep in mind that these instructions are unique to Jesus' commission at that time. These instructions, every aspect of these instructions uh, is not applicable to all periods. We'll see that in a moment when we get to a verse or two here. We'll see how certain instructions are temporary for that one commission, which was actually repeated to the 70 in Luke chapter 10, but certain aspects of it are true throughout every generation. We'll see what was temporary and what was perennial. Verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. That is the temporary instruction. That's temporary in verse 3, and it's also temporary in Luke chapter 10, where a similar commission is given to the 70 disciples. How do we know that this is temporary? Well, if you're going on a distant journey, you need to have money and you need to have bread. Their journey here was local, in, in the surrounding cities and towns and villages. But on the distant journey, you have to have money, you need to have bread. Remember, Jesus even said in Luke chapter 22, when a different incident occurred, he refers back to this. In Luke 22:35, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, in Luke 22:35, and he said to them, When I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals, did you like anything? Uh, you did not like anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. And then in verse 38, they said, "Look, uh, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. There we see, it's clear, all within the book of Luke. Luke 9 and 10, Luke 9 verse 3 and also chapter 10 were temporary instructions because he changes it in Luke 22 because it's a different circumstance. He's teaching them a lesson here to depend on God 
that God will provide for you when you go from place to place. Not that He will not provide when you go to distant places, but He's trying to teach them in stages, incrementally, to trust in God. And this is what He instructs them to do. How will they be provided? Verses 4 and 5. Luke 9, verse 4. And whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. And as for those who do not receive you, when you depart from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. He says in verse 4, When you enter a house, uh, stay there and take your leave from there. If we take the parallels in Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 6, Jesus intends when you come to a house, give them a greeting, a greeting of peace. And if the house, uh, the house owner is a hospitable man, if he's a charitable man and he says, oh, okay, you come here preaching, you're, you're a stranger, uh, come inside, let me care for your needs and let me hear what you have to say. If he does that, then he says, stay there and take your leave from there. So stay there and presumably, as long as you see fit and, and, and fine for you to teach those people as long as they're welcoming you, don't be a burden to them is the implication, but also receive from them. If they're going to give you lodging, take their lodging. If they're going to give you food, take their food. Why? Because it says in Luke 10, 7, the laborer is worthy of his wages. The laborer is worthy of his wages. The laborer, the spiritual laborer, is preaching eternal truths, so he should receive physical and temporary benefits for the physical labor uh, or for the spiritual labor that he conducts with the people. Paul the Apostle, in Galatians 6, 6, he says, And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Meaning all good things, temporary things, with him who teaches. This is the context, by the way, of do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever man sows, this he will also reap. So this is what he's teaching here too, Jesus is teaching them to benefit in material and tangible ways from the people who hear the Word of God wherever you stay and wherever you preach. However, verse 5, Luke 9, 5 says, The opposite may also occur. And as for those who do not receive you when you depart from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Here, this, as well as the preceding verse, these are truths that are to be practiced at all times. When somebody does not receive you, then when you leave that place, then shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. It's a testimony against them in terms of judgment that they should receive. You are giving a symbol of a way in which they deserve the judgment of God. They are worthy of being treated like dust, or chaff, or ashes. The Bible uses this imagery and speaks of it in terms of judgment. For example, Acts chapter 13, when, when the people of that area, some of the people of that area, resisted and blasphemed and persecuted the, the apostles, it says in Acts 13, 51, which happened several years later, it says... But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. 
They left that city and shook off the dust from their feet in protest against them. Now, this has to do with judgment and the anticipation of judgment because something similar happens in Acts 18, verse 6. 18, 6. In another city, And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. There he shook out his garments as though he has dust on his garments in a dusty place where they don't have paved roads. Uh, In most places they have dirty and dusty roads. You're going to have dust on your garments. So he shakes his garments as it says in Acts 18.6 and says, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. That is, I told you what you needed to hear. You did not want to hear it. So now the judgment is on your own head. Your blood, you are uh, guilty of your own lifeblood. I'm not guilty of it. And I'm going to walk away and go to other people who will listen. I'm going to find others who will listen. This is what he's teaching the twelve to do in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Here, one more time, this is to be repeated. We should be doing the same thing whenever we preach the gospel. We stay with people who want to hear. If they don't want to hear, we walk away from them and let them know that the judgment of God rests on their head. They need to know that when we walk away. Verse 6, Luke 9, verse 6. And departing, they began going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. That sums up the fact that they obeyed. They obeyed. These are things, some of these things they have never done before. And yet they had faith. They obeyed and went out and did what they were told to do. They went out preaching and trusting that there would be people who would believe the gospel. And they also went out healing. Trusting that the power of God would be present with them to heal people. They had to have faith, exercise faith in doing so. Verses 7 to 9. Herod reacts to this news. Herod, an unbelieving, wicked king, reacts. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Herod is perplexed. He hears about everything, and they are amazing things that perplex him. He's curious, what's going on? He's wondering if John the Baptist, who was beheaded by him unjustly, John was a righteous man and did not deserve the death penalty, but he was put to death because of Herod, wicked Herod. He thought, having some contact with the Jews, and in his own heritage, he had some lineage with the Jewish people, he knew that the Jews believed in resurrection, resurrection of the dead from the Old Testament. He knew that that was the case. So he thought that maybe John had risen from the dead because some of the people were also saying that. John rose from the dead and this is who Jesus is. And others that Elijah the prophet, because in Malachi chapter 4, 
Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6, it says, Elijah will appear before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he's going to preach that repentance so that the hearts of the children turn towards the fathers and the fathers towards the children, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Malachi predicted that. But what Malachi meant, according to Luke 1, 16 and 17, what Malachi meant was John the Baptist was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not that John the Baptist was Elijah or that Elijah was going to rise from the dead and start preaching. That's not what Malachi meant, according to Luke 1, 16 and 17. But this also shows the, the disparate response of the people. They don't know. They don't have a clue. Which shows what? Of all the preaching that had occurred and all the miracles that had occurred, they weren't listening properly. They weren't listening properly to know the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God. They didn't listen carefully. And there were times, enough times, that Jesus plainly told them that He was the Christ. At one point, His accusers say to Him in John chapter 10, John 10, 24, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. As though He had never said it plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. He tells them again, I told you and you do not believe. He is the Christ. So all of the commotion and the clamor of the crowds is evident right here. Whether it's the crowds or whether it's the evil king from a distance who hears of everything, nobody knows who Jesus is. Nobody wants to believe in the true Jesus. Of all that he's preached and all that the disciples have preached and all of the miracles that Jesus and his disciples have performed, Nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. And verse 9, Herod ad admits, I myself had Jesus beheaded, but who, uh, John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? He knows. And by this statement, he, he's condemning himself. His own lips are condemning him for what he did to innocent John the Baptist. But he's not concerned about that. He is intrigued by Jesus. He wants to see Jesus because Jesus is a miracle worker. Luke chapter 23, eventually he does get to see Jesus. When the kangaroo courts are in session, in Luke 23, 23.8, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him, some miracle. He was looking and longing for a long time to see some miracle. Ezekiel the prophet had people in his own generation who were like this. And this is actually true of every generation, not just Ezekiel's generation who lived 600 years before these incidents. And it's not just John the Baptist or Jesus. In Ezekiel 33, 33.30, 33.30, 33, 
You were just reading that. Someone said, But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come, come now, and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. Ezekiel 33.30, they say that. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, but they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song, by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. This is the problem with Herod, and this is the problem with the multitudes. They come because they're going to be dazzled by a spectacle. They come because they want some benefit, but not a true heavenly, eternal benefit. They don't want forgiveness of sins. They don't want to repent of anything. They don't want to live for the, for the kingdom of God. They want to live for their own desires, for their own gain, whatever suits them. That's what they want. The same is happening there. Okay, now let's transition to verses 10 to 17, the feeding of the 5,000, where we will see a further example of this same thing. Verse 10, And when the, the apostles returned, and they gave an account to him of all that they had done, and taking with them with him, he withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. The apostles rightfully give an account, and this is good and right to do, to report to the master, and just as the apostles do in the book of Acts, whenever they gather back to the other disciples and brethren, they give a, a report and an account of what has happened, so that they can rejoice in the things of God, and, and see what God has done, or to even to express how few people believed, even though so much was done to benefit them. But they withdraw privately to Bethsaida to get away from the crowds for some reprieve, for some rest from all that they've been doing. But they don't get very much of that rest. Verse 11, But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Okay, the apostles did all that. Now Jesus does it for them. Because they follow. Jesus does the same for them. Verse 12. And the day began to decline, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. This, that this statement they make to Jesus is, is a valid statement in the sense that they do need a place to lodge and they do need to eat. They look at, around at their circumstances that they don't see the means for that. It's valid in that sense, but it's invalid in the sense that Jesus can handle that. Jesus can do whatever He wants. He just healed people. He can raise people from the dead. They just went out and did ministry and did all kinds of miracles. Why can't a miracle happen right here? They didn't make that request. That was the problem. They didn't make a request for that. So Jesus tests them. This is a test. Luke 9.13 is a test. You can see from a parallel account in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 verse 6. John actually says 
But Jesus said this, testing them because he himself knew what he was intending to do. John 6, 6. John tells us Jesus makes this statement purposely in Luke 9, 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. What are we going to do? They are looking at it physically and short-sightedly. Okay, that's their problem. This is all of, uh, the problem of all of us. We often look at a dire situation and we get anxious about it. We start sweating about it. We start weeping and crying about it. We start talking to other people about it and we don't do what's right. We don't have faith and we don't trust God. We don't pray to God. We don't wait on God, hope in God. That's what they did here. 14. For there were about 5,000 men. From the other accounts in Matthew 10 and Mark 6, we know that there's 5,000 men, adult men. In addition, there were women and children. There were women and children. Which means that there were at least 5,000 people. Some estimate that there would have been about 10,000, if not 15 or 20,000 people, depending on how many of them could journey and go from place to place as they did here. There were tons of people around. That said, in order to assure us that this was a tremendous miracle, and this will remind us of the miracles that happened in the wilderness. God did those miracles through Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. He provided food. He provided food like that in Moses' time, and even in Elisha's time, in, in 2 Kings chapter 4, in Elisha's time, he fed a hundred men, miraculously, with few provisions. In Moses' time, the food came down from heaven, or it came from the quail that God miraculously brought in abundance, and from the water that was coming out of the rock. This is the way God provided miraculously then, all typifying that Jesus would do so, and typifying ultimately that God is our source of all spiritual food we need. That's why Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to accomplish His work. I have food to eat that you do not know about. John 4, uh, 32 and 34. So He does so here, and illustrates for them. And he said to his disciples, Have them recline to eat in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all recline. Now, their faith is exercised. They have to believe. Jesus told them to do something, they obediently do it. So that's good. That's good. And they have the people, the masses of people, sit down in groups of about 50 each. It does not tell us explicitly why. 50 each, uh, perhaps to, to, to make it convenient enough, perhaps for there to be enough witnesses to see that it actually happened to all these people, people that they know, for there to be eyewitness testimony for them to spread the word, um, perhaps also for them to count, the disciple, uh, for the 12 to count how many people there were to record it, like we have it here in Luke 9. There could be various reasons. The text does not tell us here or in the parallel accounts. But they do it, and they obey, and they recline. And verse 16, And he took 
the five loaves and the two fish. He took the meager amounts that they had already among the disciples, the twelve disciples, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. There's ample provision, as it says also in verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. They had plenty to eat, signifying the fact that God will give us plenty to eat spiritually. We also have to see here in verse 16, it says he was looking up to heaven. Looking up to heaven, why? To remind the people all around that the source of all things come from heaven. That's why he looked up to heaven. Not because looking up is going to have some magical and superstitious miracle that occurs like that. It's not just the looking, but it's the representation or the symbol of why he's looking up to heaven. So everybody knows he's trusting God, and God is the one who provides. After all, what does it say in James 1.17? Every good thing, every good gift, and every perfect thing bestowed comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing comes from above. In the Lord's Prayer, also says that, Matthew 6, 9 to 13, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, our Father in heaven. Give us this day. May your kingdom that's up there also be established down here. That's why he looks up to heaven. And it says he blessed them. He blessed them. He blessed the food. He blessed the food because of the prayer of sanctification makes what we partake of good and beneficial to us spiritually. It reminds us of spiritual things. The Apostle Paul instructs us to do the same in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 4 verse 4. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Whatever we eat should be received with gratitude because God has set it apart or made it holy, sanctified it, by means of the Word of God, His declaration in His Word, and prayer. This is why we pray before we eat. And in fact, also from Deuteronomy 8.10, after we eat, we should bless the Lord, it says. After we eat as well. We pray before, and we also should pray after and bless the Lord. He blessed the food for our benefit. And he says here, Luke tells us he broke them because the bread was broken up in pieces to be distributed. That's what it means. And when the Bible says to break bread, even at the Lord's Supper, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is for you. It's the breaking of bread that was a Jewish practice. After the prayer, the first thing they would do to distribute the food was to break the bread and distribute it to the people. Then it tells us in verse 17, And that which was left over to them of the broken pieces was picked up twelve baskets full. Twelve baskets full, one for each of the disciples. We note here that the leftovers were taken up. 
Any parents and grandparents who are teaching children, teach them to eat the leftovers. Teach them not to waste their food. Here, not wasting food is one way we show our gratitude. We show our gratitude and humility for what we have received. When we pick up the leftovers and consume the leftovers, as long as they are edible, of course, as we do that, we show our gratitude. We show that everything comes from God and that we appreciate that. Remember what Ruth did. Ruth did the same in Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 and 18. When Boaz gave her ample provisions, she ate, but there was too much for her to eat, so she took up the leftovers and took them home to Naomi for the two of them to eat there. Even in the incident in, Luke, in 2 Kings with Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 4, 42 to 44, when Elisha miraculously fed the hundred men, the hundred prophets or sons of the prophets, when he fed them, it says they ate to their full and they picked up the leftovers and ate. The same happens here at, in the feeding of the 5,000. And if we compare the feeding of the 4,000, which is reported in Matthew chapter 15, they even had leftovers and took them up with them. I don't think it's a mistake. And I don't think it's just a side comment here. That which was left over to them of the broken pieces was picked up. I don't think it's just a side comment. I think it's showing an attitude of gratitude towards the things that God has given them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.